Good morning, everybody. Great. Well, as uh, Richard said, we are doing a series in the book of Acts at the moment. This is one of those days where I'm speaking both here and at our other congregation down on the Ashley Road. We're one church in two locations, so once I finish speaking here, I'll be nipping out the door and heading down to 502 to speak there. Uh, the book of Acts is a 30-year history of the first church, and it's an account by Dr. Luke, which gives us a model of what church can be like, gives us some challenges as we look, read about what that church was like, and we can see that often the experience of God they, were, they had seemed to be more than ours, and so it challenges us in terms of our experience of God, but also then gives us something to dream about, that uh, God is living and active amongst us, and so we dream and pray for God to move in ways amongst us like he did in the book of Acts and for us to see more of that kind of power and demonstration of gospel impact in our day. And uh, the kind of battle cry we have for this is let's do it again. What might God do amongst us over the next 30 years? The book of Acts telling a 30-year story from the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the first church in Jerusalem uh, through to the end of the story where Acts ends with the Apostle Paul in Rome. In between, we're told about this church in Jerusalem, a, a mighty church which is built there, the first ever group of Christians ever existed. No Christians before, no Christians anywhere else in the world, but in Jerusalem, this company of Christians gathered together. That group of Christians then scattered when persecution comes. A young man called Stephen stoned to death, and as a consequence, many of the believers in Jerusalem flee from Jerusalem, and they spread out in the Mediterranean region, and the gospel advances beyond Jerusalem. And there's an establishment of another church in a city called Antioch, about 400 miles from Jerusalem. And there's this other mighty church that is born, uh, the church in Antioch. And, and where we're at in the story, we're seeing the, the kind of the, the twin poles of the Jerusalem church and the Antioch church, and how those two churches partner together for gospel advance, and uh, today's title is Church on the Move. We're going to be looking in Acts chapters 13 and 14. If you want to find it in the Bibles, it's on page 1107, and this is a, a part of the story which is, is known uh, as Paul's first missionary journey. If you look at the map at the back of the Bible, we've got a little map, and it says Paul's first missionary journey. Now, that sounds rather Victorian. When we hear the phrase, Paul's first missionary journey, it sounds a bit like he set out from Antioch with uh, 30 porters carrying the, his best uh, cutlery and silverware and uh, nicest wine glasses and set off to explore the interior. That's not really what it was like. It was a lot more dynamic than that, and a lot more rough and ready than that. I, was, uh, I met with Peter Baker, who's the pastor at Lansdowne Church last week, and he uh, by coincidence, had just preached in this passage as well. And he, he said that he'd introduce it to his church in the uh, immortal words of Tub Thumping by Chumbawamba, that great 90s anthem, I get knocked down, but I get up again. You are never going to keep me down. And uh, that really is a great way to think about what uh, the Apostle Paul is doing in this story, because again and again, he gets knocked down, but he gets up again, and nothing is going to keep him down. And the reality is that life has a way of knocking us down at times. This week has been fairly demanding for me on uh, 
Uh, Wednesday, I had to drive a couple of hours to go to an emergency meeting in another church where, where some leadership crisis has struck. And uh, literally, as I pulled into the car park to go into a series of long meetings trying to resolve some pretty serious crisis, got a message to say that Evie Painter had been diagnosed with a brain tumour and then had to go straight into this meeting dealing with some very intense leadership crisis. I felt a bit knocked down, to be honest. And uh, life does throw all kinds of knockdowns at us. So the question for us is, will we, like Paul, keep getting back up? We should sing it together. I get knocked down, but I get up again. You're never going to keep me down. Yeah. So we're going to look at a big chunk of scripture this morning to get the big picture. Uh, let's get rid of Chumbawamba. That's gone already. Let's have the map up. Uh, okay, here's a map, big map showing you... Uh, Paul's first missionary journey, very polite. No, I get knocked down, I get back up again. You're never going to keep me down. Uh, slightly, the map up there is to give you a sense of the bigger kind of Mediterranean area. But where this was happening, it's what we'd think of as, as Turkey, essentially. Uh, a journey of about 1,500 miles, we think in the years 46 to 48 AD. Right, so we're going to read Acts chapter 13, all the way through to the end of Acts chapter 14. So... Buckle your seatbelts, let's go. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulos. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, Elimus means sorcerer, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, this is where the name change happens, and we can all start talking about Paul, which is a relief because Saul is confusing. Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are... <laughs> You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Poseidon Antioch. Now, there are two Antiochs in this story. There's the Antioch they were sent from, and there's Poseidon Antioch. So we mustn't get our Antiochs confused. They're now going to Poseidon Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people... Please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. Let's drop over the page, verse 38. My friends, 
I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who taught with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that ye may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. Yes, the people of the city were... Divided, some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to ill-treat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the gospel. Get knocked down, get back up again, you're never going to keep me down. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed. Now, that's amazing. He's been lame since birth, and suddenly he's got faith. Where did that come from? A gift from God. And he called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted out in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas, they called Zeus, the chief of the gods. And Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven. Yes. And he provides uh, and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. 
Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. And then some Jews came from Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. I get knocked down, but I get back up again. You're never going to keep me down. He went back into the city and the next day he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Poseidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Wow! Doesn't it stir your blood? What a story. An absolutely amazing account of two years of incredible mission of getting knocked down and getting back up again with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to pull out a number of insights from these two chapters. Uh, Next slide up, Mike. And uh, I'm not sure how many of these we'll get through, but uh, there's a list of them. Let's see how we do. First thing, God works through people like us. How do people think about the way that God works? I think a lot of people in the world, even in the scientific Western world, are pretty superstitious when it comes to matters of faith. Even if people don't really have much of a concept of God, lots of people have some sense of something spiritual going on, and lots of people are very superstitious. And so people have all kinds of lucky charms and uh, lucky sayings and touching wood and crossing fingers and all the rest, and certainly in many parts of the world, uh, people are much more overt in terms of superstitious belief. And what's superstition about? It's, it's about trying to get God to work on your behalf. It's trying to avert the evil eye. It's trying to get the spiritual forces, whatever they might be, to somehow be on your side rather than opposed to you. And so lots of people think about God in a kind of superstitious way. There are lots of other people who think of God in a much more distant way. Maybe they don't really believe in God at all. Or maybe think there might be a God, but that he isn't, somehow can't be possibly involved in the day-to-day workings of the world, that if there is a God, he just wouldn't be involved in what happens day-to-day in our lives, that he's distant, that he's like perhaps like some scientist looking on from outer space, just watching, observing what happens, but actually not involved, engaged in the world in any meaningful way at all. Now, the biblical picture is very different from either of those two things. Biblical picture is that God works in human beings and through human beings. And you get a great illustration of this at the start of this story, at the start of Paul and Barnabas's mission, because it says in verse 3 of chapter 13 that the church placed their hands on them and sent them off. The church in Antioch says, okay, Barnabas, Paul, some other friends are going with them, Go, go and proclaim the good news of Jesus. It's the church making a decision. The church do it. The church send them. But then next verse, it says the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit. And so the church sends them, but the Holy Spirit sends them as well. 
And what's really interesting about this is that this isn't just an individual idea that Saul and Barnabas cook up between them. No, this is the leading of God, which is worked out through the community of God. The community together discerns the will of God, and the community and the Spirit then send Paul and Barnabas off on their mission. And I would suggest that's the best way to make big decisions about life, responding to the leading of God as discerned by the people of God. And it always amazes me as a pastor how many people don't do this, how many people make really big life decisions just kind of in isolation on their own without uh, discerning through the body of Christ that actually they're hearing things right. I mean, Paul and Barnabas were... Godly men, obviously, they were listed as being amongst the teachers and prophets in that church in Antioch, but they don't just decide on their own to go off a mission. No, the Spirit speaks, and the church as a whole responds and says, yes, we think this is right. Go on mission. And uh, my conviction is that big life decisions should be community decisions. If you're going to move area, if you're going to change job, if you're going to get married. It's not just a personal decision, but if you're a believer, that's something to be worked out in response to the community together hearing something of God's will for each of our lives. They're not sent just by the church. They're sent by the church, but they're sent by the Holy Spirit. They're not just sent by the Holy Spirit. They're sent by the church. It's God at work in and through his people. And our expectation here at Gateway needs to be that God through his Holy Spirit, is at work in and through us. That we're to act, but God acts through us, and we act in response to God's acting. And it's when we gather in the Lord's presence, as the church in Antioch did, that the Lord works. It's when we are together in the Lord's presence that we hear the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's when we're together as a body, that together we discern what God's will is and what he's calling us to as a church. It's as we worship, as we pray together, that we hear God's voice. And he stirs things in us, which we then respond to. We need to be alert to the Lord's leading, just as the church in the Antioch was. And then we need to act in response to the Lord's leading, because God works through people like us. Another insight we can see from this story is the way that God both opens and shuts doors. They head off and they arrive in Cyprus. And uh, there's this amazing story about Elimus the sorcerer and Sergius Paulos the proconsul. Now, a proconsul was one of the most senior ranks in the Roman Empire. It would have been like, in our terms, being a general in the army or a, uh, a cabinet minister, that kind of authority, that kind of seniority. And Luke describes him as an intelligent man. And he would have had to have been an intelligent man to have got to the position that he had. Very often we can look at people in senior positions and think they're pretty daft. And the reality is that people in senior positions can make pretty daft decisions. But you don't get to be a cabinet minister. You don't get to be a general unless you are highly intelligent. You just don't. You have to have high intelligence to get to that kind of position in society. And so Sergius Paulos is a proconsul. He's clearly an intelligent, an able, a gifted man, but Luke seems to link his intelligence with him wanting to hear the word of God. And this is key, that true intelligence is looking to Jesus. What's the mark of true intelligence? It's opening your eyes to Jesus Christ. Next week, Adrian's going to be talking about, has 
science buried God. People sometimes say, oh, if you're intelligent, you have a scientific view of the world. You can't believe in God. No, true intelligence is opening your eyes to the reality of God in Jesus Christ. And blind folly is rejecting Jesus Christ. And that's what Elimus the sorcerer did. Elimus was spiritually blind. He refused to acknowledge who Jesus was. And that spiritual blindness was followed by literal blindness. Elimus the sorcerer was under a curse. He was under the curse of his own disbelief, his own hostility towards God. And then he came under a curse, which meant that he was literally blinded as Paul spoke judgment over him. Now, that's a pretty interesting encounter because in terms of miracles that we might seek when we pray that God would uh, move amongst us with more power, with more signs and wonders, we probably don't have at the top of our list that God would give us authority to blind people who oppose the message of the gospel. That's not really the kind of miracles that we seek. We tend to ask for miracles of healing and provision and other kinds of positive things. But here, Paul speaks in judgment. You are opposed to God. You're full of deceit and trickery. And Elimus is blinded. What does that tell us? Well, if nothing else, it tells us that you can't put the Holy Spirit in a box. That we can have very narrow views of how we think God should operate. And uh, we can't do that with God, and God here proves that he'll do things how he wants to do them, and sometimes that makes us uncomfortable, and sometimes God doesn't do things as we would plan, but God is God. The other thing we can see from this is that really, you want to put yourself in a position where your eyes are opened, not shut. And uh, for those of you here this morning who are not yet followers of Jesus, that's really the invitation to you this morning Put yourself in the place of Sergius Paulos, who responded intelligently and looked to Jesus. Don't put yourself in the position of Elimus, who closed his eyes spiritually to Jesus, and then had his eyes closed physically to Jesus as well. God is the one who opens eyes, and he shuts them. Let God open your eyes this morning. Something else we see is that the story is important. I think we'll skip over that one for the sake of time. It's a part of the passage I I, I skipped over. Uh, Paul recounts the story of what God has done in the Old Testament and how it points to who Jesus was. Next big one to pick up is to see that the gospel divides opinion. The gospel divides opinion. When Barnabas and Paul get to Poseidon Antioch and then to Iconium, As they preach the gospel, there are crowds who respond with joy. This is good news, the good news of the gospel. God has come. Jesus has made us a way for us to know God, made a way for us to deal with our alienation from God. God welcomes us, Jews and Gentiles alike, but there's equally rejection, hostility that is stirred up by the gospel. And in this, we see that the gospel is fully about equal opportunity. Because men and women and Jews and Gentiles all respond with joy to the news of Jesus. And men and women and Jews and Gentiles all respond with hostility to the gospel. The gospel is not about ethnicity or class or gender. It's about how do you respond to the claims of Jesus Christ. And it seems that in these two towns of Poseidon, Antioch and Iconium, 
that the, the, the greater the joyful response was of those who received his message gladly, the greater the hostile response that pushed against it. Those two things come together, great joy and great hostility. And how different that is from what we see, so often see today when it comes to the, the message the church is to proclaim. I think in our context, in our culture, in, in the UK, in Western Europe, where we have so often got to in the church is the church is seen as something which is indifferent and, and neutral. Maybe a group of people who tend to do good things, but not a group of people who stir up divided opinions. And I think that's almost like a satanic strategy to neuter, to neutralize, to castrate the church, to make the church just something which is a, seen as just a group of people who maybe do some good stuff, but you wouldn't have strong opinions about because there's nothing there to have a strong opinion of. What we see here in this story in Acts is something very different, that the gospel is offensive. The gospel causes people to respond in joy, but it also offends other people. It's never neutral. It provokes strong, polarized responses. And the gospel's offensive. We're not to be offensive. Those of us who are Christians, we're to seek to be as winsome and as engaging with people as we possibly can be. But we need to proclaim the gospel in a way that divides opinions. There should be some who respond with joy. There should be others who respond with hostility. If we're not seeing those responses, if we're not seeing those extremes, then we're, not, we're probably not preaching the gospel as we should. If we're just being nice, if we're just being kind of neutral, that's not enough because what the gospel does is divide. Those who receive it respond with joy. Those who oppose it respond with hostility. The gospel divides opinions. And that means that sometimes you avoid a stoning and sometimes you don't. So in Iconium, Barnabas and Paul find out there's a plot for them to be attacked and stoned. They, somebody gives them the nod, they find out about this, this plot and they escape and they get away. But it really is a case of out of the frying pan and into the fire. So they run away from Iconium, and they end up in Lystra. And then what happens in Lystra is that Paul gets stoned in Lystra. Sometimes God delivers us in the way that we would want. And I guess for Paul and Barnabas, they thought as they ran away from Iconium, thank God that we found out about this plot that we were going to be stoned. We've managed to get away. Phew, that was close. We get knocked down, but we get back up again. That was a bit hard to deal with, but we've escaped with our skins. Right, next town, let's go there. Next town, what happens? They get stoned. Now, why? One of the things about this is we're not given any explanation. There is no explanation in the story as to why they escape a stoning in one town, and then the next town, they get stoned. <laughs> what on earth is going on? Sometimes the surgery is successful. Sometimes it isn't. Sometimes a brain tumor is dealt with. Sometimes it's not. Why? What's going on? Not really told. What we're told much more is the way in which we are to respond to these things. I get knocked down, but I get up again. 
you are never going to keep me down. Now, there seems to be something of a miracle which happens here because they drag Paul out of the city, having stoned him, thinking he's dead. So the guy must have been in an absolute mess, being stoned to the point where they think they've killed him. It says the disciples gathered around him, and then he gets up. So there must be some kind of miracle here. The disciples get around, they pray for him, and he's kind of brought back from death to life. Something pretty amazing going on. But who's going to win when we get knocked down? Is it circumstances that are going to win? Is it our enemy, the devil, who's going to win? Or is it the faithful people of God who are going to get back up again and win? On those days when we are faced by the troubles of life and we say, how are we going to get through this? How are we going to get through this? You know, God somehow is as present and as at work when Paul is being stoned to death as he was when the lame man was being raised up and was running around for the first time in his life. And you know, it doesn't feel like it. If someone who's been lame since birth receives a miraculous healing, is up and skipping for joy, hey, God's at work. When the stones, <clears throat> when the stones start flying, where is God? That's our natural response. But somehow God was just as much at work as Paul was being stoned as he was as the layman was being healed. It doesn't feel like it, but we've got to believe it. When uh, Paul and Barnabas circle back round all the towns that they visited and they head back to Antioch, they pause in the towns where they've previously been and they say this to encourage the disciples. It says encourage. They encourage them by saying this. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Now, when I go around to different people's houses in this church and other churches, often people have life verses stuck on their fridges. And it's things like, nothing can separate me from the love of God. And in Christ, I'm more than a conqueror. And I'm a child of the King. And other things like that, all of which are true. I have yet to find anybody's life verse being this one. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. That's not a verse that people tend to have stuck on their fridge doors. But perhaps it should be. I get knocked down, but I get up again. You're never going to keep me down. Because sometimes we avoid a stoning, sometimes we don't. What else can we say about this story? Oh, so much. Let's say this. There's common grace and there's saving grace. This story, this amazing story where Paul prays for this man to be healed and he jumps up on his feet. And then the people in the town, the Lyconians, think that he and Barnabas are gods because of the miracle. They, they, see, they see the miracle, but they're totally confused by the cause. And this is one of the things, as we, as we pray for God to, to work in signs and wonders amongst us, we can sometimes have a misguided idea about this. We, we tend to think that if we prayed for somebody and they got miraculously healed... A, that automatically means B, that loads of people respond in faith to Jesus. That ain't always the case. 
Sometimes people see a miracle and still reject Jesus. Sometimes they see a miracle and are just confused by how it happened. And it seems that here in Lyconia, there's amazing, just an extraordinary miracle happens, but people don't come to faith. They just get completely, actually their kind of rebellion against God is in some way hardened. They think that the Greek gods who don't even exist are responsible for this healing. And they come wanting to bring sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas, think they're the gods themselves. And Paul tries to correct them, and he does that by talking about the grace of God, which has been shown to them all. He says, God has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. What is that? That's what we call common grace. That's God's gifts, which he just pours out indiscriminately upon the face of the earth. Food and happiness and fridges full of food which bring us happiness and brain surgeons who can operate for nine hours and remove a tumor from a little girl's head. That's common grace. It's just poured out by God. The miracle of his blessing on us. But then there is saving grace. And uh, we see what this is back in the uh, first portrait of ch- chapter 13, where it says, When the Gentiles heard this, the good news, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now, what is that? That is saving grace. That is when people who haven't previously known God, haven't got a clue who Jesus is, hear the message of the gospel, hear the good news about Christ Jesus, and respond to him. Now, both these kinds of grace, common grace and saving grace, are good. They're wonderful. And we need to respond to the grace of God. In our prayer meeting before the service this morning, Carlos was exhorting us and saying how he woke up this morning miserable when he looked out the window and saw the weather. And then he turned to actually a parallel verse in the prophet Joel, where Joel speaks about how God has given autumn rains which bring the crops and how Carlos' heart was suddenly turned from feeling a bit fed up to feeling joyful in God. And we need to do that. that needs to be, we need to cultivate that practice, responding with joy because of God's common grace. All the stuff that we have, all the good things that we enjoy, all the miracles of living in a modern society with modern medicine and hygiene and infrastructure, and all the stuff that we enjoy, which is God's grace to us, not earned, not deserved, but just given God's given human beings the ability to make life better, and that is good. And we're to praise God for that. But we're also to respond to saving grace. And again, this morning, if you don't yet know Jesus, there's a grace for you to respond to. Your eyes, your heart to be open to respond. That you, like these Gentiles in these cities, might rejoice because you have been appointed to life for all who believe. Believe. An eternal life in Christ is yours. And those of us who have known that, we need to keep coming again and again and again and giving praise to Jesus for the saving grace which he has poured out into our hearts, which means that we can have confidence that no matter how many times we get knocked down, we will get back up again. There's nothing going to keep us down. Why? Because Jesus couldn't be kept down because he was raised from the dead, and in him we're raised to new life forever. Hallelujah. The church is on the move. 
Let's be on the move in God together, brothers and sisters. Amen.